You're listening to Two Smart Assets with Chris Thompson and Danny Nichols. This is your source for passive investing in real estate syndications. It's time for us to gain knowledge and take action. So let's go. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is the Two Smart Assets Podcast. I am your host, Danny Nichols. Here it's again with my co-host, Chris Thompson. Hey, what's going on, Danny, man? It's good to see you. Good to see you too, man. Learned a lot on the talk we just had. Tell the listeners what we're talking about today. Okay, so today we brought in Scott Crone. Uh, Scott's the founder of Coda Management Group, which is a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. And we spoke to Scott about how to invest in distressed and underutilized assets and still make a profit, and more specifically about how to apply that to self-storage. Also, Scott dropped three key mind-blowing facts about self-storage investing that every investor should consider. A lot of good stuff on this one. You know, I learned quite a bit and I know our listeners are going to take away quite a bit from it as well. But before we get into it, just want to give a quick shout out to all our listeners. We really appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and written review. It really helps us grow the podcast, attract more guests, and ultimately provide better information for everyone listening. If you're a passive investor or looking to get into passive investing, then head over to our website at twosmartassets.com. There you can grab our guide for passive investing in apartment syndications. This is just a great introduction to the world of passive investing in apartment syndications. So make sure to check that out. Also, grab our apartment syndication sample deal. This is going to help you get comfortable with looking at this type of investment. So when the real opportunities come your way, you'll be ready. If you have any questions about what's in either of these resources, drop us a line anytime on our website's contact us page, or you can message us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We're posting some great content on there. So make sure to follow us and start connecting. All right, let's jump into the show. What's going on, everybody? Today's guest is Scott Crohn's. Scott is a Chicago native whose career in architecture began in 1991 by pursuing his Master's of Architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. In 2012, Scott founded Coda Management Group, a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. Since its inception, Coda manages a wide range of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouse, self-storage, and multi-use flex athletic spaces. Currently, the platform of investments is in excess of $55 million. Scott, it's great to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. I really appreciate it and looking forward to this. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this for a while now, but uh, let's just dive into it. We want to. We got a lot of topics we want to talk, uh, talk about today, but before we actually jump into those topics, Scott, can you just take some time, give our listeners a, a little bit more about your background and how you got into real estate? Well, it was a crazy journey. I wasn't really anticipating going into real estate when I was getting um, my gra- undergraduate degree. Um, as we talked about, I, I went to Kenyon College to but to play soccer and ultimately play football there. But um, I majored in history because it was the easiest major that I could get the best grades in because I just I wanted to fully enjoy college and not be stuck in a physics lab. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I was going through that program, I, I, I was not anticipating going into architecture or um, real estate. I was thinking I was going to go into our family business. And my senior year, my parents showed up at uh, parents weekend and they said, um, what do you plan on doing next year? I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was going to go work in the family business. And they're like, no, you're not going to do that. Um, We're selling the business. And I was like, you know, and this has been, um, you know, I was, I was fourth generation. I worked there during the summer on breaks and stuff like that. So I was fourth generation. And and to find out that um, we were selling the family business, that was a, that's a big change for our family because that's, that was the identification or identity of our family for, for four generations. So, um, you know, my father said, was quick to say, well, have you thought about architecture? And immediately my thought turned to, well, I've already, you know, closed that door by going to a liberal arts versus a tech school. I considered it in high school. But again, I, if I decide not to pursue architecture, I was going to be stuck at a tech school. And I was like, that's going to be as boring as all can be. 
So that's the reason why I didn't go to a tech school. But um, they began this new master's program, which you could get your master's degree in architecture without having an undergraduate in that. And so that was brand new. And so that was a three and a half year program. So I took a month off and then went right into my graduate program. And it was my first semester there that we began talking about the different roles of an architect and developer. And everyone was saying how architects were poor, but the developers were, you know, the wealthy guys and they really controlled the deals. I'm like, I got to figure out how to be a developer. And so the next semester I got a TA ship with a, my professor who was a developer, an architect and a builder. And that's when I began working on my master's thesis with him, which was a 400 unit development, about a hundred million dollars in revenue. And so he, he, he selected mine out of the class and we began working on that for the next six years. Wow. That, yeah, that, that's pretty incredible. That's a, quite the story. I want to talk about you and your company, Scott, uh, Coda Management Group. Uh, you know, you focus on self-storage products. We want to talk about that for a little. Why did you choose self-storage? And can we just talk about like kind of the background of how you transitioned into the self-storage? Well, I grew up as a little kid, just dreaming about self-storage lockers and just had this vision of owning this portfolio. Of- <laughs> it's a common dream. <laughs> No, there are people like that, but I am not one of them. Um, you know, first and foremost, I tell people this, I am a real estate developer. Um, you know, I am not a self-storage guy. I'm a real estate developer. So based upon that, you know, I've done multifamily, I've done single family, I've done industrial, I've done apartments, I've done condos, mixed use, indu- all these different types of things. But the reason why we got into self-storage is during the previous recession, I had a client come to us and say, hey, I want you to find me a distressed self-storage. And I couldn't find one. It was like two years. I couldn't find one. I'm like, hey, look, if you really want to get into this field, development's the way to do so. Instead of trying to find a distressed one, why don't you buy one, buy a, a building, convert it, be at a lower cost basis, and then do it. And, you know, it's like, well, I'm not really sure how to do that. And so we actually found a building where we intended to uh, have a different, a different tenant use it. And we went through, we went under contract. We got a, a nonverbal approval from the mayor to rezone it. It was a commercial building that had been zoned multifamily that then it was, had to be rezoned back because this is an 0809 when no one was building, you know, condominiums at that point in time. And so um, after we went hard in the contract, she re- she pulled back her her nonverbal approval, and we said, "Hey, if we find something else, can you know to to fulfill your, what you're trying to do here? Would you agree to it?" And she said, "Bring me anything else, and I'll do it." So I went to my my client and I said, "Hey, look, we got this ninety thousand square foot building. Bring in your financial guys on self storage. Will it work?" And they came in, they looked at the building, and said, "Yeah, we'll work, but we don't have anyone to develop it." And I was like, "I'll do it." And so um, that's how I got into self storage. And the reason why I like it is it's it's multifamily, but a much more dumbed down situation. It's it's basically apartments without toilets. It's, you know, I don't have to worry about, you know, a toilet overflowing, a kitchen sink jamming up or whatever. I don't get those calls in the middle of the night. But more importantly, it is so much more predictable and modeling out. And my cost basis is literally 10% of what I was doing compared to multifamily. That $100 million project was 400 units. We're doing a you know, we're, we just opened up a facility in, in uh, Toledo where my total cost basis is like less than $6 million. And we have uh, 600, we actually have 754 units. So think about that. I mean, it's like I have twice as many rental products at a fraction of the cost basis. And so, you know, I can, I, it's a lot less risk. I have a lot more flexibility within the marketplace. If people need a different size, I take out a corrugated metal wall and then I have a different size. So I have a lot more flexibility in my product type. It's a lot more predictable and my, my risk level is a whole heck of a lot less. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. And 
I want to talk about one thing, you know, it's very interesting how you got into the self, the self-storage pace, you know, with the distressed assets and, you know, that, that kind of unique entrance in there. That's, I think that's, it's pretty cool. Uh, is your company when, you know, as terms of how you're progressing now or how you're going into your deals, are you still looking at distressed assets and converting them or are you doing a full ground up development? What's that look like right now? Uh, we, we were, we were going to do one in Arizona and we, we elected not to go forward with it, but the guy in Arizona did do build, did build a new one and um, was able to flip it. So we missed out on that one, but all the other ones that we've done so far, we've been taking underutilized quote unquote distressed buildings, um, not necessarily distressed in terms of foreclosure, those sorts of things, but in the sense of underutilized and we're converting them into class A self-storage facilities. So, um, you know, in Toledo, in Dayton, Ohio, we bought these buildings at eleven dollars a square foot. So I, I can't build a building for eleven dollars a square foot. Um, and the one in Dayton is a six-story building, ninety thousand square feet, um, in the heart of downtown. Um, we just closed on a building in Louisville, Kentucky. It's one hundred forty-four thousand square feet. We bought that one for fourteen dollars a square foot. So again, you know, when I'm talking with our insurance carrier, I'm like, "What's the value of the building?" Well, we bought it for you know one point seven five million dollars, but you know, it's you know what insurance policy do I get? Because obviously I can't rebuild it for 1.75. So, you know, we're getting these, you know, quandaries in terms of insurance. When we're all said and done, we're still at like 60% of the cost basis of a new construction building. So that gives us a huge competitive advantage when we're going into. So that has been our main focus for the past five years. And we are now also beginning to look at class B and C facilities where we can improve on the um, economic performance of them, either in the management or in the revenue side and um, be, being able to uh, restructure the, the capital stack in those. You brought up a lot of really good points there. And I'm actually curious, like, what are some of those uh, key identifiers that you're looking for for those properties that, you know, whether they're they're distressed or whether they're uh, underutilized, like what's something, what are those flags that you're, those metrics that you're trying to hit that let you know that this could be something right? Uh, well, the one in Dayton was pretty easy. It was empty for 40 years. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> Definitely but underutilized. Every, everywhere around it within a quarter mile is being converted into um, mixed use or multifamily. So, I mean, it was just like, literally we, we got up on top of the building we were looking around it was like new construction here, under construction, they're going to be flipped there, bought, you know, permanent next door. I mean, it was just like construction everywhere. Like this is a, this is a landmine for us. Um, so it, it's very important that we look at a, like a three mile radius. It's this, it's a three to five mile radius. So we're going into markets throughout the Midwest. We're looking at secondary markets. We feel that the coasts in the South are, are, are oversaturated. So we're looking in these secondary markets and we're trying to identify commercial areas where there are buildings that are, you know, Toledo and Dayton, our broker literally knocked on someone's door and said, hey, would you be interested in selling your building? They weren't on the market. So we were just trying to identify buildings in areas, in markets that are good for us. And then we begin pursuing them. And so um, each of the last three that we have bought have also been an opportunity zone. And so we we were, if not the first, near the first to be a, um, a, an opportunity zone plus privately funded PACE program that was in the in probably in the entire country, but certainly in Ohio. And so we, we take great pride in that. So that was in 2018 that we closed. So the zones were created in 17 and the regs didn't really come out until 19. We, we established this in 18 and closed on it in 18 before the regs were fully out. And, um, and so those are some of the things that we look for. We're looking for like 90,000 to 120,000 square feet. 
And the demographics, the saturation levels have to be good. So we want where supply equals demand is around seven square feet of lockers per capita. We want to be well below that. So those are some of the criteria that we're, we're evaluating and we're considering. Um, we're now beginning to work on one in, in Tennessee. We're going to be, we're buying an existing facility and then we're going to be expanding onto it and putting more, more lockers on into the building. So it's a, it's a combination of an existing plus a development. Yeah. There's a lot of great points there. And those are definitely good things to pay attention to. We want to talk a little bit about kind of the things that have happened this year and how it's affected, you know, the self-storage uh, industry basically. So, you know, some people hit a lot of home runs this year. Some people, you know, struck out once or twice. Uh, talk to us about how the self-storage sector was doing before the pandemic and then how it's transitioned, you know, during the pandemic to where we are today. It's a great question. Um, and, you know, we had the the pleasure, the joy, the excitement of uh, being able to open up a facility two weeks before the governor of Illinois, Pritzker, shut down the entire state. And I was like, <laughs> um, so uh, it gives you a little pr- my perspective of the governor, but um, you know when that happened, our, our operator CubeSmart was wanted to shut down um, our, our facility. In fact, they posted that our facility was closed, and I read the order, and uh, it was we were deemed essential. Very you know right from the beginning, we were deemed essential not only on the federal level but also on the state level, and so. You know, I I petitioned. I went directly to CubeSmart and I said, "Look, I don't care what you're doing at your other stores. We're staying open. You know, I'm the owner of this. Um, we're deemed essential. There's there's people that tend to run away from a fire, and then there's people that run towards a fire. If if my natural instinct is to run away, I want to be the person that needs to run towards it. So I don't want to risk anyone's health, but we can figure out how to do this well. If other entities can figure it out, we need to figure it out. And so we stayed open, and because of that, CubeSmart left all the other stores open in the city of Chicago. Um, and so one of the things that we did is the first two weeks, it was, no one was doing anything. Everyone was scared out of their minds. No one left their homes. And then April, things began to change a little bit. And then May, our, our leases began taking off. And then um, we're at 36%. In fact, today we took, uh, yesterday, we took four units yesterday. Um, so we're at 36%. So we've outpaced our one year performa in terms of occupancy compared. We, so we've done that since March. So nine months. Um, so we're very happy with that. And we're part of a mastermind of, of self-storage operators across the country. And everyone has seen the same sort of thing as that occupancy has stayed high, rental rates um, are, are consistent. Collection might be down one or 2%, but for the most part, self-storage is thriving. And I went back, you know, when this first hit, I went back and studied the last four recessions to, to put together a presentation for our investors. And what I noticed is that in each and every recession, there was a slight decline. And then it, it was a, a, an escalation in terms terms of occupancy within self-storage um, going back to 91 when there was inflation. And then we had the oil crisis and then we had um, 01, the internet bubble and 9-11 and then 08, 09 when, when the market crashed because of the housing. And each of those cases, you know, self-storage itself proved out to be the most resilient real estate product out there. And so that's that's why I deemed it uh, recessionary resistant. Back in 08, 09, that's when extra space climbed to number one in the REIT chart when they acquired $1.2, $1.4 billion of assets of real estate of uh, self-storage. Blackstone announced in the last month that they're acquiring U.S. self-storage for $1.2 billion. So Blackstone is moving into this market. Um, they were very heavy. If you remember in the 08, 09, they went after distressed notes and mortgages um, in, the, in the recessionary market. So the fact that they're going into 
self-storage is a pretty good indicator of how they feel about it as well. So you think uh, in terms of moving forward, say through this year and through, you know, the next couple of years, or even with all this uncertainty, you think uh, self-storage is going to be a great place to uh, to invest? I think it is, but it's like anything else. You have to buy right. You know, you make your money on the buy. You don't make it on the sell. So if you don't buy right, it's going to be hard to make money. But, you know, I think it is a place to to invest. I mean, one of the things that we're looking to do is how how we can always structure capital gains and and, and tax structures to, you know, enhance our investors' uh, portfolio or, you know, obviously their tax returns. But, you know, those are the different things that we're also looking at is not just the deal itself, but how we can accelerate or enhance their investment, um, which we don't bake into our performer. We, we say, hey, that's gravy. Everyone's tax situation is different, but we're going to do these different steps in order to maximize your your tax opportunities, if you will. Yeah, that's, the, that's good stuff. And, you know, being able to have those conversations with your investors and having that communication, I think is absolutely, absolutely critical. And, you know, having that outlook is amazing. You know, during our pre-recording communications, you mentioned, you know, there's, you had three mind-blowing facts about the self-storage investing, you know, and we absolutely want to hear kind of, you know, what those are. And I think our listeners do as well. So let's just run through those. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit already in the fact that one, it's recessionary resistant, um, how well it does in a recessionary market. Um, and, and that's really just supported by data. You know, it's, it's not just my feeling. Um, the second one is also a, a, a data-driven fact that we can go in and it's a very predictable model. So when we look at a market, we can model it very accurately in terms of what the lease-up projections are supposed to be. So when we built that 400-unit development, I don't recall there being a feasibility study where like, you know, what's the population? Gonna, I mean, we were in a, an established community and coming in and putting in 316 condominiums, 24, I mean, 64 townhomes and 16 single families. Like, how did we know that this stuff was going to sell out in the next six to eight years. There wasn't really a model for that. So it was a huge, huge risk, huge gamble. Um, you know, but in our modeling, we can see the patterns. We, we can predict the patterns. We can predict the population. We can alter our unit type based upon the demographics, how affluent the community is. The more affluent it is, the bigger the units, the, the less affluent it is. We make the, the average locker smaller. So these things are very modelable. Uh, you know, we can model them out. They're very predictable. And then the last point is, you know, how much of, you know, appreciation we can create within the model because of that. You know, the fact that we're coming in and buying, you know, distressed assets, converting them, we can create a huge basis point there. And then with the cost segregation, historic tax credits, the opportunity zones, um, selling off cell towers, those are the different ways in which we've enhanced our, our investors' uh, rate of returns and, and um, performance on their product. You got a, got a lot of good stuff in there. I like that, uh, like you support this, I mean, like everybody, every good investor should, you know, supporting a lot of your uh, opinions and, and and the things that you know about, you know, based on the data that you've just spent a lot of time just uh, analyzing. And I'm curious, uh, like, what do you think are like some of the top, you know, four or five, like, proven, like proven passive investments out there. You know, we know about self-storage is extremely resilient. Like what are some of the other things that, uh, that have your eye? Well, I mean, that's two different questions. I mean, you know, in the past, since the crash 0809, I mean, everybody's been parking their money in apartments um, and the cap compression on that is just ridiculously low. That's why I sold my apartments. I got rid of all of them because I didn't think there'd be a lower cap rate. Um, you know, I think that there's going to be a readjustment in, in that market, in that position right now. Um, but, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm going to say, hey, look, I'm not I'm not perfect in my my predictions because I've been been predicting that since 12, so 2012. So I've been off for eight years saying that that the, <laughs> the apartment market's going to be correcting itself. So, um, you know, the p- people for the last eight years are like, see, he's totally wrong. But um, you know, there, there's got to be a right? what's that? That's a broken clock, right? Exactly. So there, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a correction on that. I think it's going to have to do more with the monetary policies rather than the, the underlying economics of it, just because of um, interest rate corrections. You know, um, the Fed is, we're at the bottom, you know, it can only go up. And so, um, you know, they only have so much left in the tank in order to stimulate the economy here. So, you know, if we go to an, a negative interest rate, you know, that could be something, but, you know, that, that will be a really interesting market to see what happens there. I do believe we are going into a recessionary market. Um, it is it is also predictable based upon um, the change in the presidency um, that I think that that will happen. Um, the other area that I that has caught our attention that I'm looking more at is um, cold storage and the automation of it. And so um, it is exactly the same modeling as self-storage, but the efficiency of it is even more incredible because when it goes automated, there is no loss in circulation because, well, there is loss, but the amount of circulation is decreased to the, basically the width of a pallet. And, you know, it is an, an incredibly automated and um, system. So we're, we're looking at different ways in which we can automate our facilities and um, go to um, basically a fully remote access um, site in a rural area where, you know, we don't have to have someone working there on a daily basis that everybody can go in with a keypad and or a kiosk and, um, you know, rent a unit and stuff like that. So those are the types of things that we're, we're pursuing. That's pretty interesting. That That is very interesting. And, I, you know, you're talking about, we've talked about, you know, secondary markets in our conversation and stuff like that uh, with, in terms of, you know, what you're looking at and, you know, rural areas. How do you think the the effects of this year have really kind of pushed things to secondary markets and rural areas? Do you think there's going to be more continued, uh, you know, pressure, you know, or like, you know, movement to those areas and it's really going to, you know, benefit these type of investments in the secondary markets? Do you think that's where we're heading? Do you think that trend is going to continue? What do you think that looks like? Well, there was definitely a fleeing from the city. Um, you know, we I've seen that in my own community where, you know, housing stock, you know, I'm not going to say shot up dramatically, but there was a lot more transactions. So transaction and deal flow occurred at a higher level where we live. Um, so th- I do think that, you know, the initial reaction was to get out of cities. You know, I think the gateway is still going to be, you know, we like it because we can buy, we have a gr- much greater buying power in, in those areas. So, you know, I, will everybody be able to flee to their rural markets? No, because of the fact that, you know, zoning won't allow it. You know, there's only so much um, development that can accommodate that sort of level of housing stock. And so as much as people want to leave cities, I don't think it's going to be this tremendous flight entirely away from the cities. So what we might begin seeing is, you know, pricing in the cities coming down. And, um, you know, one of the things that makes self-storage good there is because it's a viable option to expand your apartment without moving. You know, if I can get an extra 25, 50, 75 square feet of space, you know, relatively cheap compared to what I'm paying per square foot, it's a viable option than having to move. So about you know, in our urban markets, about 50% of our, our renters are residential, the other are commercial. And so, you know, that's the type of thing where we see that it's going to be a, a balance of those. So, you know, we are anticipating that there is going to be a change in the urban market. Um, it might take us a little bit longer to lease up, but um, we still think that there's going to be product there just because of the amount of housing stock. Yeah, absolutely. You make a lot of great points there. And, you know, Scott, it's been, I've learned quite a bit just from our conversation up to this point. And I, I really think I could probably sit here and talk to you about this stuff for, for quite a while. But uh, before we get out of here, 
man, before we run out of time, we want to take some time and shine the spotlight on you. So tell listeners a little bit more about, you know, your company and what you have going on. Um, like I said, we just um, acquired this building in Louisville, Kentucky. So for the next year, we're going to be working on that. Um, it's going to be a combination of self-storage and flex warehouse space. And we have, well, the reason why we bought it is because we already have existing tenants. So that was one of the things that was really appealing to us is maintaining those tenants and, and developing this. Um, we're also working on this one in Tennessee. So now we're going to be going into a, another state. Um, we're expanding that. And we're looking in the secondary markets. Our, our original goal beginning about three and a half years ago was to have 10 facilities in five years. And so that was our that was our goal. And, you know, the beauty of it, I knew that if, not if, but when a recession hits, that's that, that actually benefits self-storage. And so I'm not concerned about, you know, if it's a bull market or a bear market, it just alters, you know, for me, those alters financing, those alter, you know, ability to rezone, those sorts of things. So this past year, though, I will, I will say that the one challenge that we had during the COVID era or the COVID period of time was the confidence in the market for refinancing or getting debt. That, that proved to be a little bit more of a challenge, especially with PPP out there and those sorts of things. So once those programs are, are gone, I think that there'll be more confidence in terms of what we're doing. You know, the, the lenders that we're working with in Kentucky, this is going to be their first self-storage facility that they've ever done. And, um, you know, it's a $10 million project for us. So it, it's a it's a pretty substantial project, but they felt confident in it because they they looked at the apartment market that they usually are. And they said, hey, this is this is a, a dumbed down, easier version of that. So that's why they're moving forward with it. And we're getting great terms and great rates with that. So that's what we're working on. And, um, you know, we're just looking to continue to expand and, and grow. We're, we're, we're evaluating a property in Ohio right now. So within the next year, we could be having um, three development properties under under roof at one time. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. You're making big moves there, Scott. And we'd love to hear that for sure. So if our listeners want to find out more about you and your company, where can they do that? Well, we appreciate it. Um, but first of all, what I like to do is give back to them. If, if someone comes across a building that they think is is worthwhile or maybe an opportunity, they come across a big box that they see is for sale um, and they think, hey, that might make a great self-storage facility, but they don't know what to do or they see a piece of property that might, if they, um, you know, email us, which is info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com, or they go to our website, codamg.com. And in that bar, they, if they put your show um, in there, or they reference you, Chris and Daniel, and then we will jump on a call with them. And um, if anybody is also interested in, in just learning about self-storage, we'll send them a feasibility report. It won't be on something that we're doing. It'll be on something that we've done. And But they're great educational tools to understand because these things are like 75 pages, 100 pages. They not only talk about our location, about what makes it good or bad, but we only go after the good ones. So the one we're going to give people is good. Um, good, it would be good, not bad. Um, but the <laughs> the bigger thing is that it, it talks about the overall market and what makes self-storage good. And so you'll learn a lot by reading it if you can stay awake. Um, if you're having trouble sleeping, I would suggest pulling this out. You might fall asleep really quickly. But um, and so we will give that to anybody who who reference your show. And so um, or we'll spend an hour on the phone with them. You know, we've had people um, call us up and say, I want to I want to I want to do this with this location. We, you know, we put it in the computers and we look at it and we run some modeling and we're like, whatever you do, do not do it here because it, the market is oversaturated. And like, what are you talking about? There isn't any self-storage where I live. And I'm like, there's this spot, this spot, this spot, this spot. And this spot. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, that's, that's the, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's, it's not my opinion. It's, you know, when you buy a house, it's like, what do you think the house is worth? You know, self-storage is a completely different animal. 
Man, we love that. And we're going to make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes. And that's a, it's a great opportunity for our listeners, you know, to connect with you. And, you know, if they have something that they think that could be a self-storage facility, uh, that's awesome, man. We really appreciate uh, you doing that. But uh, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes and uh, so our listeners can find out more about you. But man, One other quick point, though. I want people to feel the confidence that if they do send it, we're not going to try to steal it. This world is too small. You know, if you want us to sign a non-disclosure, non-circumvent, we'd be more than happy to do that. Um, but it's just what we, what we'd give back to the community. Well, the transparency. Yep. That's, that's fantastic. Scott, man, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. Head over to iTunes to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, we really appreciate you leaving a rating and written review. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, connect with us on social media or through our website at twosmartassets.com. We look forward to speaking to each and every one of you. Talk to you soon.